Hello listener, thank you for joining us for episode 29. This episode is all about losing your baby teeth. You can expect some mild gore where we talk about the physicality of that. We'll also be discussing the tooth fairy and her magic in a way that might not be suitable for very young listeners in. So be advised about that. On with the show. Hello and welcome to Even the Trunchbull, our show about children's books and why we still love them as adults. She's Nina. They're Matt. And we think that children's books are for everyone because we've all been kids. Even, Even the, the Trunchbull. Trunchbull. They're all mistakes, children. Filthy, nasty things. Glad I never was one. From Roald Dahl's beloved Matilda, despite her protestations. Each episode we'll be reviewing one picture book and one chapter book. We're starting off with the books that we read as kids, but if you've got a book you'd like us to review, especially if you are currently a kid, please get in touch. You can email us on eventhetrunchbowl at gmail.com or catch us on Twitter and Facebook at TrunchbowlPod and on Instagram at eventhetrunchbowl. And we're doing another milestone experience episode, aren't we, Matt? We've done riding bikes... Now we're losing teeth. (laughs) We're talking about teeth. Teeth. So, Matt, do you remember losing your first tooth? No, I don't specifically remember losing my first tooth. Do you? Yeah. I remember really enjoying the wobble a lot, but then being quite worried about what would happen when it came out, and then it was fine. That's good. Then it's just continuous for about five years, isn't it? You're just losing teeth. At least, yeah. From like, and it's like bits of your head falling out. It's strange, isn't it? And what I do remember is um, it simultaneously seems like a really normal thing. I think it's maybe a thing that was a thing. And then as soon as I start telling the story, is also absolutely crackers. I remember my little sister having a wobbly tooth. My dad swearing by a method... What he did was tied a bit of, like, string, like dental floss or something, round my sister's wobbly tooth, and then tied the other end to the door handle of an open door and slammed the door. Um, Was she all right? To some extent, you could say it worked. There was quite a lot of blood (laughs) for that one. It happens in our chapter book as well, doesn't it? That's what they do for King Booby's tooth. What, they slam it in a door? I missed that bit. They don't, but they tie a piece of red silk around his tooth and yank it out. Yeah, that's true. I think the door adds a certain je ne sais quoi to the whole. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we haven't said what books we're doing, have we? So we're, our chapter book, as you say, is, is Perez the Mouse. By Louis Coloma and retold by Lady Morton. Yeah. And our picture book is Dave and the Tooth Fairy by Werner Allett Wilkins and illustrated by Paul Hunt. Both of our books this month are to do with mythological beings that come in the night and exchange your baby tooth for some money, which is one common form of um, dealing with the fact that children just have teeth falling out of their face. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense that you would mythologize this and write a story around these things, right? Because without context, the experience of losing a tooth could be really weird and disconcerting. Yeah. It's bits of your body pushing other bits of your body out of your body. 
yeah. via your mouth. If you talk about it like that, it sounds really horrible. For all that, like, it's a weird biological thing that happens to you, I think it's also quite empowering to be the one that wobbles the tooth and to be the one that pulls it out. Yeah. Like, I think it's kind of a cool body experience where it's sort of celebrated and it means you're growing up and you can sort of do it at your own pace. You can be like me and you who wobbled them a lot, but you could also leave it alone and just let it happen naturally. Do you know what I miss? Is the sensation of jamming your tongue into the gap where your teeth used to be. I love that. (laughs) And feeling the little nubbins of the new one coming through. Can still like viscerally remember how that felt. It was a good feeling. It was cool. Yeah, it was great. The oldest reference I could see to children being given gifts in exchange for their milk teeth was in the Edda, which is a 13th century Norse text. So the Vikings would pay a tond fee or tooth fee to their children for their teeth. But there's no hint of it being anyone other than the parents that make that payment. There's lots of cultures where you put the tooth in a tree that grows up nice and straight, like a pine, for example, to sort of encourage the new tooth to come in straight. So the Yellowknife Diné people in North America and the Aboriginal Australians did that. Right. Some cultures turn the teeth into jewellery for the child to wear, like in Chile and Costa Rica. Teeth get thrown on the roof a lot. They get thrown in Cameroon, Botswana, Mauritania, Greece. Quite a lot of cultures feed the tooth to like an animal with nice healthy teeth with the idea that like you will get nice healthy teeth like, for example, the rat or the rabbit that you fed your tooth to. Why would you want the teeth of a rat? They're nice and strong and straight. I mean, you can have too much of a good thing, really, can't you? <laughs> There's one that I really like from Cambodia, which is if the tooth is from the bottom row, you throw it on the roof. And if it's from the top row, you put it under your bed. Because the idea is that the new tooth will be attracted to the old one, like magnetism. So the tooth on the roof will pull the new tooth up, (laughs) and the tooth under the bed will pull the new tooth down. I love that. That's pretty cool. Like it's like a little homing device. Yeah. (laughs) So I found out all these facts from a really good picture book called Throw Your Tooth on the Roof by Selby Beeler. So if you want to make these same discoveries and others, I really recommend that book. The two that we're talking about, though, are Perez the Mouse, who fetches the milk teeth of children in lots and lots of countries, started in Spain in the late 1800s and has now spread across the Spanish-speaking world, and the Tooth Fairy, which started in the USA about 100 years ago. See, I didn't realise that the Tooth Fairy was that recent. No, it's really recent. Like, you've had sort of 13th century stuff of paying for a tooth. Yeah. But that being a fairy is 100 years old. And it only became really popular around the same time as, like, the first Disney films, where there was all sort of these fairies in, like... Right, okay. Fairy in Pinocchio and in Snow White, things like that. Yeah, no, it's because it, it, it feels like something we've been doing forever, but it's really not. It's really recent. Yeah. Did you ever catch a, a Tooth Fairy coin swap? I didn't, no. Did you? Yeah, I did, yeah. I'd start, I'd, I think I'd started to suspect already, but yeah, caught my mum giggling to herself. Because <laughs> I was in a high bed, so she had to climb up a ladder, oh. which rattled and creaked. So I woke up and I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> Such a nice image, her giggling away <laughs> up your ladder. 
<laughs> Shall we move on to our books? Yeah, let's talk about the actual books. That was great, though. Uh, thanks for all that. those little tooth stories. So, our picture book is Dave and the Tooth Fairy, and it's by Werner Alec Wilkins, and it's from Tamarind Books. This is the picture book I picked up in one of the charity shops near me. And I had never heard of Verna Wilkins, and I had never heard of Tamarind Books. Have you? Nope. All right, so I looked into it a little bit. Tamarind Books now belongs to Penguin Random House, but it was a publishing company started by Verna Wilkins, the author of this book, from her own kitchen table in 1987. And... The focus of Tamarind Books was always explicitly to represent black children, Asian children and disabled children in kids' fiction. And this was one of the very first books that they made. Cool. I think it's important to highlight these things because we think about representation as a you know an issue in kid lit now as something that's very modern or something that's very US-centric. You know, we've talked about we need diverse books and stuff like that from the US. I think it's really interesting to know that there have been efforts and activism in this direction in the UK too, and for a long time. Yeah. I've seen Dapo Adiola and Mallory Blackman giving Verna Wilkins props for like paving the way for the work that they do now in UK Kid Lit as black authors. And from a kitchen table, which is pretty cool. That's Yeah. It was because her son came home from school one day. He brought home an All About Me booklet with a drawing of a little boy in it. Yeah. And he'd coloured in the little boy in pink. And she offered him a brown crayon to be like, do you want to do this in brown? And he was like, no, because it's in a book. The boy has to have pink skin. Oh, wow. Yeah. Like he had internalised age five. Even if a character is representing him. Yeah. In books, people have pink skin. Yeah. That's pretty stark, isn't it? Terrible, yeah. right? And so so cool that she took that and was like, well, clearly this is not acceptable. Yeah. So they only ever printed books when there was money in the bank account, which there usually was not, and they ran it from the kitchen table, like her and her partner and her children. And this was one of the very first books they made, and it sold loads, upwards of 200,000 copies in its first print run. Wow. Yeah. I mean, yeah, for a, particularly for a, picture book that's a yeah that's a pretty huge run isn't it yeah yeah so i'm really happy i came across this because i i didn't know about any of that oh that's great yeah, yeah. so do you want to synopsize the story or shall i yeah i can i can give it a rundown little lads um he's got a wobbly tooth and he's thinking that's good because i'll get some money for that and he really wants to buy a kite yeah he wants to buy a kite and he needs his uh Tooth fairy money for his kite, and he does a massive sneeze, and his tooth shoots out and immediately disappears. His granddad comes round and he says, Granddad, I sneezed and I lost my tooth. Granddad says, Yeah, that happens to me sometimes. I lose all of them at once. <laughs> and they don't go very far, it's fine. Dave is looking all over, can't find it. He finds crusty crumbs, his favourite car. An enormous comb and three old buttons, but no tooth. So basically, he swaps out his granddad's teeth. He sneaks into his granddad's room and <laughs> takes his teeth out of the cup by the side of the bed, slips them under his pillow, which alerts the tooth fairy, who is... Um, she's on duty. She gets a little 90s boxy computer, gives her a ping, 
in Tooth Fairyland in the office. It's just like you got a you got a job on. Like it's a like it's a taxi hub, I guess, is sort of yeah. how I pictured it. So she goes out and she looks under the pillow. She goes, Jesus, there's 32 teeth here. I can't afford this. Which again, I love, like, she has a budget. She's like, God, I'm going to have to I have to send an email to finance about this one. But yeah, she goes back off to Tooth Fairy Land. And then in the meanwhile, Grandad, he stands on Dave's tooth. He goes, oh, what's that? That's sharp. Oh, it's Dave's tooth. So he goes to give it to Dave and finds all of his teeth under the pillow. So he does a swap. Um, and it's his quickest swap ever, which I found intriguing. I was like, oh, Grandad's got a got a past. Grandad's done some swaps before. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so then the Tooth Fairy comes back, presumably with a like... Oh yeah, in the picture she's holding like a big sack. Yeah. <laughs> she's all the money. <laughs> like she's been down to the vault, you know, she's had it approved <laughs> by the, the Treasury Department. And then she looks, oh, there's only one tooth here. That's that's weird, but I get that makes it easier, I guess. And she drops the coin off and then goes back and uh And when she gets back to the office <laughs> She's got a job offer and it said at the beginning that she she quite likes being a tooth fairy, but she'd like something a bit more you know like where she gets to interact with kids rather than just sneak into the rooms when they're asleep. And she gets back and she's got a job offer, which is amazing. She's gonna get to work with the the, the kids directly loads more now. So then Dave wakes up in the morning, comes run downstairs, goes, the Tooth Fairy came so I can buy my kite and goes to the kite shop. And the Tooth Fairy is the new manager of the kite shop. Yeah. Which is great. Because <laughs> loads of kids go shopping at the kite shop. And everyone's happy. So the Tooth Fairy works in the kite shop. Dave gets his kite, which he then flies. Grandad has his own, well, his false teeth back. Yeah. And everyone wins. Yeah. And it's lovely. I really like this. There has been a reissue of this book with more modern illustrations. Oh, I like this. Sorry, I like the illustrations. But yeah, I like these. I like these a lot. They're sort. Of, they're very. They're sort of the style is very dated. It looks like. Would you say it's color pencil, sort of almost photorealistic. It looks a bit sort of uh, homeschool special kind of. Yeah. Like it, the sort of thing that you might find in like uh, a year seven language learning book. Mm. It's almost a little bit uncanny valley, isn't it? It's sort of very real, fully fleshed yeah. out pencil, coloured pencil drawings of people. Yeah. But that have got that like, they're, they're cartoony, but they're not drawn as cartoons. No. I wanted, yeah, I wanted to touch a bit on the style of this and then we'll talk about the updated one later. Um, there's a character you didn't mention at all, which is Dave's friend Zizwe. Yeah. That he sees on his way to school and he asks Zizwe, oh, do you believe in the Tooth Fairy? And Zizwe's like, yeah, Tooth Fairy's come to my house four times and shows Dave his four coins. Yeah. And Zizwe is a wheelchair user. And when I first read this, before I'd done any research, I was like, huh, did Werner Wilkins write him as a wheelchair user? Or was this a creative flourish from Paul Hunt? But now that I know that the whole point of Tanner in books was representation and that yeah. part of the purview was disability, I think it must have been on purpose. I think it's really well done in that the first couple of illustrations where you see Zizway, you can sort of see that he's sitting down. I like that the focus of the drawing is always on the child and not on the wheelchair. Yeah. Um, but the person pushing the wheelchair is never even in shot. So in one picture, you can sort of see... 
the hands yeah, yeah. that are pushing the wheelchair. But that's it. Like it's it's really focused on the child and it's not mentioned at all in the text. Yeah, I I really like that and that sort of surprised me for the time that this was done as well. So this is from the late 80s, I think. Yeah. Um I thought that was really good. In the new edition, they've made a couple of changes. The um the new illustrations look much more computer drawn, right. much more modern, probably much more appealing to a modern child reader. And in the new one, Zizwe is using a motorized wheelchair, which has got like a little joystick so that he can drive it himself. This with the Paul Hunt drawings, it looks like Zizwe's wheelchair is kind of like a hospital wheelchair. But you know, like both are valid, people use both. Yeah. I like the interior of Dave's home as well. You know, art on the walls and stuff. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. It looks like there's some Egyptian hieroglyphics art and then like some African masks. Yeah. I also really like um, how they've drawn Afia. That's the name of the Tooth Fairy. So she wears these blue leggings and a kind of floaty white tunic. And she's got her hair in small braids. And she, whenever she's like drawn full body, she's poised like a ballerina. And I think she just, I don't know, she just looks really beautiful. Yeah, it's just graceful, isn't she? I love that her wings are detachable. Yeah, <laughs> they're just like sort of part of a little backpack. That was my favourite thing about this book is like the Tooth Fairy as like mildly dissatisfied admin worker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Who's <laughs> like, all right, cool. There's a call. Strap your wings on. Come on then. <laughs> Yeah, and at the end when she's working in the kite shop, she's still got her wings. They're just like hung up on the hook where you would normally hang your coat. Yeah, that's nice, isn't it? Like she might go back to it. Yeah, or she might like go and get your kite out of a tree if it gets stuck. Or maybe she was supposed to hand the uh, wings back to HR, but she just swiped them when she left. You can get the new edition with the new illustrations by Carl Pierce. I'll send you a link to the new one so you can see what they look like. Oh, yeah. I mean, I can see why they've done it. Yeah, me too. But I like Paul Hunt's better, I think. Well, I think, to be honest, like, for both of us, when we were kids, books still had that illustration style far more often. That was much more the style, yeah. Because it's that new, as you say, computer-drawn. I mean, I think that's that's hand-drawn and then fed through a computer. Well, and it's much more stylized. It's much less realistic looking. I like it a bit less, but I think you're right. It's because we're 90s kids. Oh, no, I quite like what they've done with this. Yeah. I, I like both. Yeah. Um, but that's that's a really nice update. And nice that it's been updated. Nice that it's still kind of around. And Yeah, I mean, it's very beloved. So who's it format? Well, I think, as you've said, um, for black children to be able to see themselves represented, for one. Children who are of tooth-losing age. Yeah. People who were concerned about it, kids who were excited about it. Yeah, and uh, our chapter book doesn't exactly have chapters, but I've chosen it because it was the kids' book that launched the legend of Perez the Mouse. And this was a story that was commissioned by the Spanish royal family in 1894 for the then eight-year-old King Alfonso XIII or King Booby as his mother and regent nicknamed him. So Luis Coloma, who wrote it, was, you know, a sort of giant of Spanish literature. And it was just like, here, our kids' teeth are coming out and he's a bit distressed about it. Can you write him a story? 
Perez the Mouse is the story that resulted from that. And it just became massively, massively popular. There's a plaque in Madrid to Perez the Mouse, so-called, you know, of where he lived. Like, oh, Perez <laughs> lived under this building. In a massive Gruyere cheese. Yeah. <laughs> Then in 1914, Lady Morton reinterpreted it for an English audience. And that's the book that we've read. Yeah. So it's a story about King Booby, King Alfonso the Thirteenth. Yeah. And King Booby's got a wobbly tooth and he decides to be a very big, brave, grown-up boy about it. So he allows one of the king's counsellors to, I think, wrap a thread of red silk around the tooth. Yeah, so he gets the gets the red silk, not with a door handle. Not with the door handle, um, but he's very brave about it. Tooth comes out, he asks what to do with it, and his mum tells him to write a very polite letter to Perez the Mouse. King Booby hates writing, but he does it because he's a good boy, and he only gets ink all over his fingers, all over his nose, and all over his ears. He's very clean about it. He leaves the letter under his pillow, along with the tooth, and then he decides to stay up all night to see if he can catch Perez the Mouse. And he does. Perez the Mouse is like, oh, hi, you're supposed to be asleep. He's less subtle than my mum, Perez the Mouse, isn't he? Yeah. (laughs) He's not that fussed about being caught, is he? No. Um, And they get talking and they have a very nice conversation, and then Perez the Mouse, by way of like getting out of this awkward social situation. It's like... He's like, the king hasn't dismissed me yet, and he's the yeah. king. So. <laughs> no, he's a bit stuck. <laughs> but uh, I, I need to also go and collect uh, the tooth of a little boy called Giles tonight. So, like, wish I could stay and chat, but got to go. He's like, oh, can I come? And Perez is like, ooh, because he's like, man, that's a lot of responsibility, because if the king gets killed on my watch... Yeah. Presumably, actually, nothing happens because he's a mouse, but, you know. I know, but it would be quite bad if the king died as a mouse. For his line of work, yeah, it's not ideal. But then the king says, um, oh, I'd really love to see your home. And Perez is so flattered that he's like, oh, well, you must come round for tea then. So Perez the mouse puts the tip of his tail inside King Booby's nostril. There's a sentence you don't hear in every podcast. (laughs) <laughs> Booby sneezes. It's a piece of magic, and it's a magic sneeze. King Booby becomes a cute little mouse in a little royal outfit. Yeah. Um, and he follows Perez the Mouse through the streets of Madrid and under the houses. And it's quite dangerous because there is a cat called Don Pedro that lives not too far away. And so Perez is very, very careful with his royal guest, to get him to his house safely. And then they get to Perez the Mouse's house, which is sort of organised, and I wonder if it is Lady Morton's own personal touch on the story, but like a upper-middle-class English family? Oh, yeah, if not owning class. Like, they've got the maids and the... The governess. The governess. And, and like, the older brother who goes out to his club to talk to foreign dignitaries. And just plays cards all the time, and his parents are like, oh, Alfonso. I've got a little excerpt to read here. The two Mrs. Mouse were at work with their governess, Miss Stilton, who was a very learned English mouse, and Mrs. Mouse was embroidering a beautiful smoking cap for her husband, sitting by a bright fire made of raisin stalks. 
This happy family party delighted King Booby. Adelaide and Elvira made tea and poured out some into lovely wee cups made out of the skins of white beans. Then they had a little music. Adelaide sang Desdemona's song, O Willow Willow, in a way which much pleased the king, and Elvira recited about a little naughty mouse who was ill of fever and a naughty kitten who wanted to pounce on it. <laughs> That's probably my favourite bit of the book. I love Me that, too. like that whole little homely description. Yeah. And also, Miss Stilton, the governess, sounds a bit like Miss Minton. Coincidence? Firm but fair. I think Miss Stilton was my favourite character. Yeah. I love how she's, she doesn't do anything other than that, but the way she's drawn, she has this like real regal poise to her. <laughs> Did you catch the bit where um, Perez is talking about his whole family and then um, he doesn't say much about his wife and so King Booby understands that like she must have quite bad manners or something? Yeah, that bit was not the worst bit politically that we're going to get in this book and we'll get <laughs> onto that. But there was just a little side swipe of like, yeah, Perez was like, oh, and my wife will be there also. And King Booby, who is a child, goes, oh, yeah, she must be a nightmare. He clearly doesn't want to talk about her. <laughs> <laughs> she's she's clearly a very disagreeable character. Yeah. So they have this lovely little tea party, and then they have to go and deliver Giles's present for his tooth. Yeah. Um, and they bring an armed guard of mice with bayonets and swords... Yeah, and muskets, I think, in the in the drawings, yeah. Yeah, um, to protect the royal personage on their way to Giles's bed because Giles lives upstairs from the old woman who keeps Don Pedro. The dreadful cat. When they get to the right room, the soldier mice spread out along a line and like point their bayonets at the cat, which is sleeping, and then King Booby and Perez run across from one mouse hole to another. <laughs> yeah, I thought that bit was interesting. It's it's a bizarre move narratively to be like set yourself up for a chase scene with like the villain of the piece who literally sleeps through the entire scene. <laughs> <laughs> so then they go upstairs to Giles's bedroom, and Giles's bedroom is also his living room and his kitchen because Giles is a very poor child and lives in just one room with his mother and they haven't even got a bed. They've just got like a pile of blankets on the floor. And though it isn't even dawn yet, Giles's mother is waking up because she has to go to work. And because she's waking up, she wakes Giles up to say his prayers. He's got a picture of the Virgin Mary above his bed and he says his prayers so beautifully. And while he says his prayers, Perez bows his head and yeah. Booby bows his head and all the mouse soldiers bow their heads. They're all so moved by this moment. King Booby realises that there are lots of little boys in Spain who are just like him and who say their prayers to the Virgin Mary just like him. And why don't they have anything? Why are they living in such awful conditions when he lives in a palace and has as many nice soft blankets as he likes on a beautiful soft bed in a bedroom all of his own? And he vows to himself, he says, I, I never again am I going to sleep in a quilted bed until every child in my kingdom has a blanket. Which is really good. Yeah. And a really good thing to have learned from this experience. And yeah. he sort of comes home with Perez, like, quite humbled. And then... And he wakes up and there's his mum and he says his prayers. Yeah. And he, he tells his mum, like, about his revelation. 
and what he's decided. He says, why have I got all this when so many little boys in Spain have nothing at all? Yeah. And she just breaks it, basically. She's like, oh, well, it's because uh, you were born to rule, and so God has given everything to you so that they may be grateful, and you are like a big brother to them all. Yeah. Um, And you'll see them all in heaven. (laughs) (laughs) The actual quote of what she says, right? Because it sounds like it makes sense until you think about it for a second, and then you're like, eh, what now? King Booby's asking about this. He says, the other little boys in Spain say the same prayer, our father which art in heaven. The queen answered, because he is as much their father as he is yours. And then the king said thoughtfully, we must be brothers. Yes, my darling, they are your brothers, answered the queen. Booby's eyes were filled with astonishment, and in a choky voice he asked, then why am I a king and have everything I want? Well, they are poor and have nothing, right? Good question, Booby. The queen gave him a squeeze and, kissing him again on his forehead, said, Because you are the eldest brother, which is what being king really means. You understand, darling? God has given you everything in order that your younger brothers should want for nothing. Yeah. Awful, isn't it? Right? But sort yeah. of like slightly baffling, but sounds like it more or less makes sense. Just read that the end of that quote from his mum again, how she... Describes. Let's just isolate that bit. God has given you everything in order that your younger brothers should want for nothing. Right. Let's think about that for a second. In what <laughs> Even in the context of the argument she's making, how does that make any sense at all? It's such a... <laughs> God's given you all of the things so that everyone else doesn't need to want anything. Yeah. <laughs> what? But, like, I I still think, I, I would maintain this is still a fairly radical thing to have written on retainer for the royal family. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It comes close, doesn't it? Luis Coloma had no choice. He had to tack on a monarchist ending at the end there. Up to that point, it is more or less the story of the Buddha. Yes. So... And isn't that interesting? Yeah, so the Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, was a very wealthy prince, about 500 BC, roundabout, in what is now Nepal. And I was reading about this before. Before he was born, there'd been a prophecy that he'd either be a great ruler or a great sage. And his dad thought, oh, I don't want him being a sage. I don't want him being one of these ascetic types that renounces everything. Mm-hmm. So he kept him locked in the palace, surrounded by, like, all of the riches and everything he could want. But there was something kind of nagging at his brain. So he left and he went out into the world and he saw all the poverty and all of the death and was like, oh my God, this is what the world is actually like. And then sort of started his spiritual journey and then went through various different teachers trying to find the enlightened way and eventually sat meditating under the Bodhi tree and became enlightened. And that was kind of... He initially decided that, okay, well, I'll renounce everything. So kind of same as King Booby does. Like, right, well, until everyone has what they need, I'm not, like, I'm going to sleep on a hard floor. I'm not going to eat. And then he landed on the middle way, which was kind of like renouncing 
self-indulgence but also renouncing self-deprivation so it's like no you should just have enough for what you need and if everyone does that then that's kind of the way forward whereas king booby's middle way via his mom is don't worry about it because you're king and they'll just be dead grateful that you're praying for them yeah (laughs) (laughs) it's just it's so close when it just veers off I think it's really interesting. Like, it's kind of gutting in that context, right? Because it's like you can see this moment where this little lad born into the upper echelons, and like the uppest echelon, is like yeah. has this like moment of kind of ethical realization. And you can see that mm. brainwashing straight away. There's just that little tweak of like, oh no, don't worry. And you can see him, you know, growing up his whole life to be like, I am born a rule and this is how yeah. things should work and it's really good for yeah. everyone that I have all of the things that they don't have. It is a bit gutting as an ending. I wonder if it's intended to be. Yeah, maybe. It was just sort of like getting it in there as, as much as he could with that message. and. Well, yeah, I mean, well, they did do away with the monarchy after that. Maybe that's why. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, tell you what, this is getting more... Maybe maybe this poet does have a little something-something in there, then. All that small world stuff, it makes me think of, like, the Borrowers and the Giants and the Joneses. And, like, yeah. I think there's something really appealing about that to a lot of children. I mean, I, I wasn't one of these children, but lots of children do loads of small world play. My little sister used to play something called Mouse Village. Right. <laughs> you would go in the garden... And you sort of like dig a trench. Yeah. (laughs) And then you would kneel on the edge of the trench and tell the stories of all the little mice who lived in Mouse Village. There were no toys. She was just like kneeling over a hole in the garden. She did this for ages, ages and ages. And there was this whole world, this whole imaginative world of like the mice. I just think like it's like um, The Amazing Maurice as well that we've covered on the podcast. You know, these like. Small world stories, I think, are so appealing. I just think there's something incredibly appealing about that, about that point of view and that small world stuff. And I also think that the trick of putting his tail in Booby's nose to make him sneeze to turn him into a mouse, that's super cute. Yeah, and something really nicely functional about it. Like, right, come here then. (laughs) Like you're hitting a reset button on an MP3 player or something, right? I love the drawings in this as well. Like, as an object, I mean, I don't have it as an object. We're reading it off. archive.org yeah i really like them they're by george howard vice yeah yeah lovely pictures like sort of do you want to describe them a bit like watercolors i guess but the very sort of like quite dated now but in a in a cozy kind of way like yeah in a charming way. bit sort of like like old copies of the wind in the willows type yeah. illustration or um everything drawn they're all drawn as mice but anthropomorphised in that they're wearing little clothes. And a lot of character in the drawings, like Miss mm. Stilton, the governess, my favourite character because of how <laughs> she's drawn this real elegant poise. But a close second is, is one of the sisters, the my sisters. I think it's Adelaide. It's the one that's like dressed like she's from the 80s, like the 1980s. She's wearing like a little pink mini skirt and she's just... <laughs> Oh, yeah, Adelaide with the tea and the little... Yeah, oh. do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> it's like she's about to go out to a disco. Yeah, and she's got a little bow around the end of her tail and little high heels. Yeah. Do you know, it's, it's just so delightful. Things in miniature 
are just inherently delightful. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that really taps into this really nicely. Who's your favourite character then? Booby before he gets the talk from his mum. <laughs> or maybe Booby anyway. He's the only royal who's ever been nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. Oh, well, there you go. I'm giving this more and more credit here. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is as good and as revolutionary as, you as you're going to get. As you're going to get if you're writing for the king. Yeah. I like this. Oh, I'm looking at the picture now of the, <laughs> the mice with the muskets pointing them at the cat that's asleep. Yeah. I love it. I love that kind of the because there's something that feels slightly satirical about that whole bit as well in a slightly yeah. underhand way because it's this massive, huge bluster, and maybe that's. I know I said it was sort of felt narratively weird before, but maybe that's the point. The guards silently formed up from hole to hole, ready to fire to protect the king's route from the sleeping cat. It was all very grand and imposing. An ugly old woman sat in a chair, also asleep with her knitting on her knee. Love it. It was all very grand and imposing. Yeah, it was all very important and useless. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, like, I like it more and more the more we talk about it, actually. It's become a super popular story off the back of, like, this one commission for a little boy king. And that is amazing. Yeah. To have had that big of an influence. Who's it for, apart from, obviously, King Alfonso XIII, who is who it's literally for? I think there's an opportunity for a, a chat with your kids about poverty and inequality. and. Of course, yeah. It is dated, but it's funny. The bits about the king at the beginning, like, oh, he was really good about having his tooth pulled out. He didn't even have to have laughing gas like he normally did when they cut his hair. What? <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's written, like, in this very humorous style. Like, I'm not going to claim to have chosen it because I think it's the best story ever. I've chosen it mainly for its historical significance, yeah. but I did really enjoy it. Yeah. Oh, we didn't do Scaryometer. Is it at all scary? No, it no. isn't. <laughs> like, Don Pedro the Cat is the scariest thing in there, and he's asleep. Not scary at all. No. Zero. Yeah, or a one. The, the mice have guns, so that gives it a one. Okay, I'd, there's that one point, guns. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'd, okay. I'd be scared Good. of a mouse with a gun. I'd, well, no, I wouldn't know how to use it, no, would it? But wouldn't. a mouse... <laughs> 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 but if there was a mouse with a tiny little mouse gun and the and the mouse to use it, it, it would upgrade it from, like, mouse to wasp on a scaryometer, wouldn't it? I'd, yes. And I'd give, a, I'd give a wasp a one. So. Sure. <laughs> Oh, I hope you've enjoyed this half as much as we have. So this was episode 29 of Even the Crunchbowl. Thanks for listening. Once again, if you've any thoughts on books you loved as a kid... Or love now as a kid... Let us know, or ask a grown-up to let us know. We're at eventhetrunchbowl at gmail.com or catch us on Twitter and Facebook at Pod, and on Instagram at eventhetrunchbowl. Intro music for this episode and every episode is What a Wonderful Day by Shane Ivers. And remember, kids' books can be for everyone, because we've all been kids. Even, Even the, the trash, trash bowl. Bowl.